0: Oh, wow, well, big surprise. Um, this is going to be an interesting one. It's one that I've looked at for a while um, and I've thought about doing for a while. I just wasn't sure about it yet. Um, but I, I decided that it's time. I'm going to do it. Um, there's another one that may come out of this one later um, because a lot of stuff that happened here um, and a lot of things in this were um, can be kind of taken back to a, a, a cult. Um, that was started for drug rehabilitation um, called Synanon. So I think Synanon is something that I'm gonna either I'm gonna tackle later or I might um, tackle with Big D, but we'll see what happens there. But what we're gonna talk about today is the trouble teen industry. But before I really get into it, once again I want to thank all the listeners. Thank you for for listening. Thank you to you know everyone that keeps us on the air, um, keeps doing everything, putting us out there. Um, you guys are great, and we wouldn't be where we're at without you. Um, yeah, so thank you all for listening and telling all your friends. So we're gonna bust right into this the the troubled teen industry. If it's if you're not don't know what that is, um, it was a term that was used um, for a broad range of youth residential programs that were aimed for at struggling teens. This was. Uh, it kind of went on for a bit at probably 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, I think even into the 2000s. Um, but it was a whole idea of basically, your kids suck. We're going to send them to these places to get help and make them not suck. Um, sounds great, right? Um, and this was something that was very big. I'm, if, I remember seeing this a lot on like Phil Donahue um I think Oprah even had this on her shows, stuff like that. They were on a lot of the daytime talk shows where they had um, people coming in and talking about these, these camps and these schools where they would send these troubled teens that had issues, um, drugs, sometimes just some of them, even they'd send the kids there just in case they had an idea becoming bad and they would stop it before it even started. Um, and, I want to say that they they started them out of, you know, really out of kindness or they really were trying to do something good. But most of the ones that I can find looking at who started them, everything else, I'm pretty sure they were started for money. But you had different ones. You had residential treatment centers like the lawn school, which we'll talk about. Um, Then you had wilderness programs, which... In sense sound okay, but once you really look at them, not so much. Uh, boot camps, not like the boot camps that we have now where you go and you pay some, you know, wannabe drill sergeant to yell at you and make you do push-ups. No, we're talking like they'd send them and it was like, it was brutal. Very brutal. And then thera- therapeutic boarding schools was another one that they talked about. So we'll kind of go through all these a little bit here and there. We'll touch on a couple of them that were um, very um, well known and not good at all. So we'll start off with the idea of uh, the the residential treatment centers, um, which were sometimes called rehab. Um, they would live in healthcare facility for therapy to basically for substance use disorders, mental illness, stuff like that. Um, It was a nice way of what we would call, unfortunately, you know, loony bin. Not the nice way to say it, but that's what most people think of it as. So a mental hospital in some ways, but not so much. More like substance abuse, like you'd see on TV and stuff like that, that you go to to try and get healthy, which is good. Some of these can be good. If you go to good ones, they can be good. So, but you do run into problems with these where they do go bad. Um, so this is where problems start coming into some of these. So some of these for adolescents, they refer to as teen rehab centers, uh, provide treatment for issues and disorders such as op- oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, depression, bipolar, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, educational issues, personality issues, phase of life issues, as well as substance use. So it was pretty much, and it sounds bad to say this, but if your kid was growing up and you didn't like something about their personality or the way they did things, you'd send them one of these places and say, fix them. So it was supposed to be a, you know, most of them were trying to be like a community or positive peer culture model where it was, um, they, they tried to make them feel better and become better. And in a healthy way. And like I said, I'm not maligning all of them. There was just a rampant use of abuse and everything else that went through a lot of these. Um, but they, they, a lot of times they'd use rewards and punishments in place. And sometimes those punishments would become to a point where it was not good at all, not good at all. Um, they would use the behavior uh, modification paradigm Which is uh, a treatment approach that uses respondent and operant conditioning to change behavior. So, um, it's fancy ways of you know saying basically giving prizes or or awards or punishments. So, so to reinforce something positive. To punish you know punishment for positive negative blah 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 all that kind of stuff. So. It, w- it was interesting. So, and it gets scary. And I'm not going to go too deep into some of these because it's one of those things. I mean, I've taken some psychology classes and stuff like that. So I understand some of it. But at the same time, they start getting very much into the, the medical terminology for a lot of these. But basically what it came down to is a reward and you know punishment. But then some of them actually went to just a punishment, punishment. No reward. It was just all punishment. Um, and we'll get into those, uh, once again, like I mentioned before, the most famous one of that was the Elon school. So, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the idea of the residential, which that one, a lot of good residential treatment centers can be good. Not saying they're all bad, but some of them are. So you got to look to do research, find out what you can about them. So that was a residential treatment centers wilderness programs whole nother joyous thing here so also known as outdoor behavioral health care it was a treatment option for behavioral disorder order of substance abuse mental health issues and a lot of times this is part of the problem that you run into sometimes and this was like i said the 80s 90s 2000s um where mental health issues weren't looked at the same way they are now anytime someone acted up did anything it was a they they had mental health issues and go "You, you can't help them go go send them to one of these schools and like i said some of them they would just send them because they they wanted to make sure like oh your brother was caught smoking pot we want to make sure you don't do it so we're going to send you too um yeah but in these cases the wilderness therapy ones patients spend time living outdoors with their peers But they're like, once again, reports of abuse, deaths, lack of research into efficiency have led to a lot of controversy. Um, And there's no solid proof of its effectiveness in teaching and treating behavioral disorders, substance use, mental health issues. But, I mean, it did help some kids. Some kids did come out of it better, but in a lot of cases it didn't because it was one of those things they just kind of throw them out there and say, here you go, figure it out without a lot of help or anything like that. And some of these kids, especially if they had substance abuse issues, they're going through withdrawals. They're having other medical issues. And a lot of times, this is where it comes into problems that we'll talk about more later with this teen industry. What would happen is one of the kids that went through one of these and was abused and beaten, whatever, they would suddenly graduate and become one of the counselors. And just, they have no training in this, just what they've been taught. So they just continue the, the cycle and makes it even worse. Um, uh, the term wilderness therapy is sometimes used interchangeably with challenge courses, adventure-based therapy, wilderness experience programs, nature therapy, therapeutic camping, recreation therapy, outdoor therapy, open air therapy, and adventure camps. They have all sorts of names for them. So the lack of a consistent definition has created problems with comparing studies into the effectiveness of the programs. And that's the problem with these two. There's really no set. Way of doing it. Some of them worked well because of how they were set up, but then other ones would go out and set it up in a completely different way that didn't work. So there's really n- hard to tell what the effectiveness is because there's no clear definition of how to do it. Um, there was um, an attempt to address that and making an integrated definition of a wilderness therapy program is offered as one which utilizes outdoor adventure activities such as primitive skills and reflection to enhance personal and interpersonal growth. So to further distinguish wilderness therapy from adventure therapy by placing it within wilderness settings where the location and remoteness became a central part of the procedure, while also separating wilderness therapy from other forms of wilderness-based pre programs through the clinical and therapeutic methods that are applied. Now, the problem that we run into a lot of this, this is one of those things where, I mean, think of naked and afraid, but you're not naked, you're just afraid. And you're not doing it on purpose. Like, you didn't sign up to say, hey, I want to go try this. This is a thing where your parents are like, yeah, we think you're going to be a problem. Um, here, go live in the woods for a while with these people who might know what they're doing, which most of the time they didn't. So it became very, very problematic. So one example of this, so Natalie Beck, Jennifer Wong, um, wrote in a 2020 paper, a meta-analysis of the effects of wilderness therapy on delinquent behaviors among youth. Um, they offer three models of wilderness therapy. An expedition model, generally lasting for less than eight weeks. A base camp model, where clients stay at a central location but engage in short wilderness excursions. And then a long-term model, where clients engage in wilderness excursions but otherwise remain in a residential program. Um, in the expedition model, clients undergo an extended hiking trip, setting up camps in various locations as they are taught survival skills. With the base camp approach, the clients stay at a central facility but undertake wilderness excursions from that location, which can last for multiple days. Finally, when using the long-term model, clients stay at a rural camp for an extended period, potentially up to two years. And a wilderness component is introduced in daily activities or in the facility setting. So in in the U.S., a large number of these programs are located in the state of Utah. Wow big surprise um incidents of alleged and confi- confirmed abuse and deaths of youth have been widely reported across many of these programs so that's the big problem we run into is that these programs one a lot of times people weren't trained correctly and they would just go out there and do it and people died and it, i kind of the hard part for me is i mean i don't know about you i did boy scouts when i was younger Um, For a bit. I I didn't last long because they put me in a group with a bunch of yuppies who idea of roughing it was having a hotel room without a remote. So, I mean, it it bothered me. But before I got moved into that troop, I was in a troop that was, you know, did the wilderness stuff. And we spent time outdoors and we did all that. And they taught us how to start a fire with, you know, uh, a clump of dirt or a clump of grass and, you know, a flint. We learned all that. Those were good. It helped in Boy Scouts, kept people to do things. But a lot of times, I mean, those kids, when they were younger, might have been forced into it, and then you got old, you quit, whatever. But in these cases, these kids are teenagers who's never, most of the time, i have never seen any of these, probably coming from, you know, the, the burbs, you know. And once again, their ideas are roughing it as a, you know, hotel without a remote. And now all of a sudden, you're throwing them out of these programs and saying, do this with untrained p- professionals. Telling them how to do it. And counselors who are running this. Who don't know what they're doing. And then of course bad things are going to happen. Um, So there was a bunch of these. That you know they found that most of the people. That were there were. Sent there involuntarily. They did not want to go like I said. And then there was deaths. So. um, For just. And this is just the wilderness camps that we're talking about at the moment um here we go february 1990 three t- teenagers drowned at convict lake whilst in whilst enrolled at camp o'neill um, camp director bobby trott who was in charge during the teenager's death would go on to found crater lake school and be a founding member of NATSAP, which i don't know i'll have to look that up but yes but um yeah so um yeah three Three people, teenagers drowned. Not good. Not good at all. That's how you get Jason Voorhees. May 9th, 1990. Michelle Lynn Sutton from California dies from dehydration while enrolled at the Summit Quest program. That one was rough. I've looked looked more into that one. Uh, Michelle Lynn Sutton, she died. um, They found that she had not had water in seven days because one of her punishments was they didn't give him water. Not a good plan. 1990, Kristen Chase dies three days into the Challenger Wilderness Program. January 15, 1995, Aaron Bacon dies from acute peritonitis while attending the North Star Wilderness Program. 2001, the New York Times reports that there have been 31 deaths at outdoor camps for troubled youths in 11 states since 1980. May 27, 2002, Erica Harvey dies from heat stroke and dehydration. July 15, 2002, Ian August dies during a hike while attending the Skyline Journey Wilderness Therapy Program. Um, August 2002, 11 teens are found in distress at a wilderness therapy program camp and taken into protective custody by Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services, Child and Family Services Division. September 18, 2002, William Edward, Edward Lee suffers damage to vertebral artery after being restrained. October 14, 2003, Charles Chase Moody asphyxiates and dies after staffs improperly restrains him at the On Track Wilderness Program in Texas. March 23, 2003, Corey Baines dies after tree limb falls on his tent during the Catherine Fur Wilderness Therapy Program. 28, 2009, Sergey Blasitsin dies from dehydration and hypothermia while at Sage Walk Wilderness Therapy Program. November twenty third, twenty fourteen, Alec Lansing dies from hypothermia and a broken femur while trying to run away. December twenty fifteen, six students are evacuated from Open Sky Wilderness Program and flown to Denver, Colorado with frostbite. The Open Sky Wilderness Program is accredited by Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Council um, and the Department of Human Services for Colorado and Utah. So this is an accredited school. February 2024. A federal lawsuit was filed against Camp camp Wilderness in Lake Toxawa, North Carolina, over allegations of sexual assault against a 12-year-old girl in 2016. The plaintiff, a male student, was also alleged to have sexually assaulted two other girls who attended the Wilderness Therapy Camp. The lawsuit was filed shortly after a male student was found dead at the camp. February 2024. Um... Hey, isn't it February 2024 right now? Yeah, so pretty recent. So these are still going on. Problem. So, um, Maya Sadovitz, author of the 2006 book, Help at Any Cost How the Trouble Teen Industry Conspires Parents and Hurts Kids. I listen, listened to a little bit of this book. It was actually very informative. So, Um, She concluded that many tactics employed by wilderness therapy programs are no different than those used at Guantanamo Bay. So they're treating treating her kids like prisoners are treated at Guantanamo Bay. How nice. So... Uh, she has documented a case of emotional physical abuse and the withholding of food and water and sleep and the food and water was very common of withholding the food and water that's why you got so many kids that died from dehydration um, and everything else and hyperthermia will also exacerbate exasper- blub- 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 will make the dehydration worse so it's always bad when i know i can hear the word in my head but i can't speak it my brain doesn't always work um <laughs> In October two thousand seven and April two thousand eight, United States Government Accountability Office convened hearings to address reports of rights spread and systemic abuse in adolescent treatment facilities. In connection to the hearing that issued a report about the wilderness therapy industry in which thousands of allegations of abuse were examined. Thousands. The Federal Trade Commission has published a list of questions for parents to ask when considering a wilderness program. Um, and that's the hard part. Well, was you know. You get into these. So staff qualifications in some programs, licensed mental health personnel are not employed to work directly with participants, with programs instead hiring licensed mental health personnel as consultants, or in other roles. So, like I said, a lot of times the counselors that are dealing directly with them have no training, and sometimes are former patients or former you know students. So it just continues the cycle. So, some researchers have argued that national standards should be created with respect to the training, formal education, and license in therapeutic wilderness programs. I agree. So, that's the wilderness. That's just the wilderness programs, um, which is a piece of the troubled teen industry. Um, Boot camps was another one. So, But it doesn't go that far. I mean, it's not that big of a Is really the other because they're more kind of, in a sense, they're part of both the other ones. So boot camps are part of the correctional and penal system of some countries. And that's the thing. When you look up boot camps, that's the first thing that comes across. That they were used as part of the penal system. Yeah. And then, once again, they were used to traumatized children and everything else in the troubled teen industry did they work sometimes possibly Hmm. but not always that great so and they were all over other countries i'm focusing mainly because i'm in the u.s i'm focusing mainly on the u.s if i wanted to bring in other countries we could do like probably four episodes on this so the first boot camps in the u.s appeared in georgia and oklahoma in 1983 so Boot camps are intended to be less restrictive than prison, but harsher than probation. So it's supposed to be a step in between. For like, you know, we don't want to send them to prison because we don't want to. It hasn't gone that far, but it's beyond. It's beyond probation. So we need something in the middle. Makes sense, right? So in most U.S. states, participation in boot camps programs is offered to young first-time offenders in place of a prison term or probation. In some states, a youth can also be sentenced to participate in such a program. So sometimes they would give it, offer it to him, say, hey, instead of doing this, going to prison or being on probation, how about you do this? Sounds great, right? Other times it was a sentence. This is where you're going. So time served was usually 90 to 180 days. So not very long. The boot camps were supposed to be a shorter option. So, um... And they would use this to make up for prison sentences of up to 10 years. So, federal shock and incarceration programs are authorized in the U.S., but placement requires content, consent of the prisoner. In 1995, the U.S. federal government and about two thirds of the 50 states were operating boot camp programs. Presently, there are no statistics as to how many boot camps are in the U.S. In 2000, there were 51 boot camps still open. So in 2010, 80% of the participants were ethnic minorities. So um, there are many types. Some boot camps were, you know, therapeutic. Other ones were just evil. Uh, State-run boot camps were banned in Florida on June 1, 2006 through legislation signed by Florida Governor Jeb Bush after 14-year-old Martin Lee Anderson died while in a boot camp. Anderson died as drill instructors beat him and encouraged him to continue physical exercise after he had collapsed. While Anderson was unconscious, guards placed ammonia tablets near his nose in an attempt to revive him, and he suffocated. Anderson attended Bay County boot camp in Panama City, Florida. The Victory Forge Military Academy in Florida has come under intense scrutiny of its methods, which border on physical abuse. The camp's defense is that the parents had signed a contract authorizing the use of physical force against their children. There is a difference between physical force and abuse. That's all I got to say. So... Studies in the United States suggest that boot camps with a strong therapeutic component, such as education, drug treatment, and counseling, have a positive effect on participants. While those that have no counseling, consist only of physical activity, have a significant negative effect. Because the problem you run into when it does have a therapeutic component to it, usually there's a licensed, you know, person who's putting this together, and hopefully overseeing it, if not being fully involved. And when it's just physical, it just becomes violence. We as humans, I hate to say this, I know people are going to be mad at me for saying this, and I really don't care. Humans are a violent, they're a violent species. We are a violent species. I get it, not everybody is, but as a majority, we are a violent species. You give people that chance to have that physical violence, To basically try and use physicality to get somebody to, you know, change and everything else, it becomes abuse quickly. Very quickly. So a key criticism is that emphasis on authority can only result in frustration, resentment, anger, short temper, a low self-esteem and aggression rather than respect. Some boot camps have been the subject of abuse scandals. According to the New York Times, there were 31 known deaths of use in U.S. boot camps since between 1980 and 2009, a rate of approximately one death each year. So, that's the idea of boot camps. So, not the best option, obviously. And then, lastly, there's the therapeutic boarding schools. And we'll kind of go more into these a little bit. I'm going to really focus on one here in a minute, but I kind of want to give a quick overview of what they are, and then we'll go more into a very specific one. All right, the therapeutic boarding schools. Um, The type of boarding school that delivers therapy while students attend the school. So it was supposed to be the idea of like basically, you sent someone to like a boarding school of any type, but this was one where you were sent and you got therapy while you were going to school. Makes sense, seems good. Mm, mm, mm. Some examples of that therapy that they would use that was very common in a lot of these was attack therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, Equine therapy and primal screen therapy. Sounds fun. A lot of fun. Attack therapy. Not I mean, really attack therapy? Well, what what? So, attack therapy was one of several pseudo-therapeutic methods described in the book Crazy Therapies. It involves highly confront confrontational interaction between the patient and the therapist, quote unquote therapist, or between the patient and fellow patients during a group therapy in which a patient may be verbally abused denounced or humiliated by the therapist or other members of the group yeah no you're all probably saying say what so that was the whole idea you basically put a group together and insult somebody makes them great sounds awesome so this was something that was used um by a lot of groups actually synanon which is the cult that i mentioned earlier was one of the ones the first ones to really put this out there um and they showed this on different you know programs the other big one to use this a lot was a lawn school which we will talk about a lawn school here in a minute um but yeah it was also called the ring um group i mean there was a couple different names that they had on this uh but it's horrible So it's a horrible idea, horrible idea, and we'll probably come back to that a little bit more here in a bit. So cognitive behavioral therapy um, is a psychosocial invention that aims to reduce symptoms of various mental health conditions, primarily depression and anxiety disorders. Cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the most effective means of treatment for substance abuse and co-occurring mental health disorders. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy focused on challenging and changing cognitive, cognitive distortions, such as thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes, and their associated behaviors to improve emotional regulation and develop personal coping strategies that targeted solving current problems. Though it was originally designed to treat depression, it uses... Its uses have been expanded to include many issues in the treatment of many mental health conditions, including anxiety, substance use disorders, marital problems, ADHD, and eating disorders. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy includes a number of cognitive behavioral psychotherapies that treat defined psychopathologies using evidence-based techniques and strategies. So cognitive behavioral therapy is actually one of the ones that worked because one of the big things that it says there, evidence-based techniques and strategies most of these other ones do not so it was a very common form of talk therapy based on the combination of the basic principles from behavioral and cognitive psychology so so it was different from historical approaches to psychotherapy such as the psychoanalytical approach where a therapist looks for their unconscious meaning behind the behaviors and then formulates a diagnosis Instead, CBT is a problem-focused and action-oriented form of therapy, meaning it is used to treat specific problems related to a diagnosed mental disorder. Before, a lot of things like Freudian thought was the fact of, oh, let's find the underlying, you know, oh, you know, epi- ep- you know, epitomous, whatever, freaking syndrome, everything else, oh, um, all that crap. Um, and basically, they came back and said, no, we're not going to look for all that. We're going to find, look for the problem and find the action. So that's kind of the cognitive behavioral therapy. This was one of the ones that was actually used by some of these programs that was actually effective. Uh, Equine therapy. So this one actually sounds good. As long as you're not needing claw Washington. So equine assisted therapy encompasses a range of treatments that involve activities with horses and other equines to promote human physical and mental health. The use of equine therapy has roots in antiquity And applies to physical health issues in modern form. Um, It dates back to the 60s. Modern use supports for mental health treatment dates to the 1990s. Systematic review of studies of equine assisted therapy has applied to physical health date only to about 2007. So it's kind of one of those things that you basically you would just you know therapeutic horseback riding, um, all that kind of stuff using animals to make you feel better. Um, We've all found that you know things where they have dogs, you know, come into the the hospital, stuff like that. This is basically the same idea, but it's with horses. So another one that actually has found to work. Another one was primal therapy. is a trauma-based psychotherapy um, that was created by Arthur Genove, who argued that neurosis is caused by the repressed pain of childhood trauma. Another one that goes back to the Freudian thoughts, basically that usually any um, neurosis is basic based in some kind of regressed or repressed childhood. Um, Genova argued that repressed pain can be sequentially brought to conscious awareness for resolution through re-experiencing specific incidents and fully expressing the resulting pain during therapy. Primal therapy was developed as a means of eliciting the repressed pain. The term pain is capitalized in discussions of primal therapy when referring to any repressed emotional distress and it It's purported long-lasting psychological effects. Janot believed that talking therapies deal primarily with the cerebral cortex and higher reasoning areas and do not access the source of pain within the more basic parts of the central nervous system. Primal therapy is used to re-experience childhood pain, i.e. felt rather than conceptual, conceptual memories. An attempt to resolve the pain through complete process processing and integration, becoming real, an intended objective of the therapy is to lessen or eliminate the holds of early trauma exerts on adult behavior. Primal therapy became very influential during a brief period in the early 70s after the publication of Jono's first book, The Primal Scream. It inspired hundreds of spin-off clinics worldwide, and served as an inspiration for many popular cultural icons. Singer-songwriter John Lennon, actor James Earl Jones, and pianist Roger Williams were prominent advocates of primal therapy. Primal therapy has since declined in popularity, partly because Joanov had not demonstrated in research the outcomes necessary to convince psychologists of its effectiveness. Furthermore, primal therapy is not accepted in the field of psychology, largely due to the lack of research, however, proponents of the methodology continue to advocate and practice therapy or variations of it so that's kind of the idea there basically you just like scream yell really get into the the primal needs of a person once again another one that has some seems to have some benefit now the one that we're going to focus more on is the attack therapy but we're going to go that here in a minute so um and really go into that, which, well, let's go into it now, the Elan School. This is probably one of the most famous ones. Um, opened in the 70s, and then it was pretty much closed down in 2011. It was basically a high school, grades 8 to 12. So Elan School was a private co-educational and residential behavioral modification program and therapeutic boarding school in Poland, Androscoggin County, maine and part of the reason they went to maine maine had some very interesting it was the laws basically you could get away with more in like maine than you could in any other 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 area Um, so it was a full member of the national association of therapeutic schools and programs so it was accredited and was considered to be a part of the troubled teen industry. The facility was closed down on April 11, 2011, due to reports of abuse, many from f- former students, dating back to its opening in 1970. So a was located on a 33-acre campus that was formerly a hunting lodge. There were also other campuses, campuses such as the one on 424 Maple Crest Road in uh, Parentsville, Maine, which was formerly a hotel and hospital before it was bought by a in 1975. The campus was known to have some of the worst abuse in the school's history and is said to have have been put out of use sometime in the 80s. The school acquired, acquired notoriety during the 90s and early 2000s when former classmates of Michael Skakel, who had attended Elon in the 1970s, testified against him in his trial for an unsolved murder that occurred about two years before he enrolled at Elon. School is also the subject of persistent allegations of abuse in their behavioral modification programs. A lawn school was founded in 1970 by Joseph Ritchie, a former heroin addict who had worked with young people in drug treatment facilities, along with a psychiatrist named Dr. Gerald Davidson. Ricky headed the school until his death in 2001 when his widow Sharon Terry took over. In 1974, a lawn uh, one was damaged by a fire with damages estimated as hundred thousand at about a hundred thousand dollars. Maine politician Bill Diamond served as the school's director of governmental relations. So here's the big thing. The lawn school for one, Joseph Ritchie, is, you know, a, a former heroin addict who was part of guess what? Cinnanon. Um, at one point. Um at least I don't know he wasn't a huge part of it, but he had some ties to Cinnanon in some way. So, um, and while having those ties to on, he learned some things like the group therapy. The other thing with Joseph Ritchie, he had no, no, no ties to anything of being any kind of counselor or anything like that. He was just a guy. So the only one that was really a psychiatrist was Dr. Darryl, Gerald Davidson. But from anything I can find, Gerald Davidson wasn't a big part of besides being like a name, and a financial backer, he wasn't a huge part of the day-to-day operations of the school. So, um, the school's program was described as controversial. Humiliation was identified as a therapeutic tool, as was following up on such intervention with encouragement and warm support. So they would humiliate you and then make you feel better. Um, Sounds like what they always say that, like, sociopaths due to their 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 spouses and their yeah beat you down and then bring you back up so students attended year-round in 2002 a new jersey educational consultant who had referred students to lawn for 22 years told the new york times that he would refer only the most serious cases to the school which he said would take kids who haven't responded to other programs and who are really out of control the school's treatment, me- treatment methods were based on the therapeutic community modality popularized in the 60s at facilities such as Synanon, once again, and later at Daytop Village. In 2002, a New Jersey educational consultant told the New York Times the school was certainly not for the faint-hearted. He said there's lots of confrontation, and yet there are lots of hugs. Accounts of former students include mentions of physical and mental abuse, including degrading tasks such as sessions of cleaning u- urinals with a tooth. Toothbrush, that could last for hours, and up to the point of critical malnutrition. So a lot of controversies. So throughout its history, the school was faced with numerous allegations of student maltreatment. 2001, Details magazine cited it as among the most controversial of the nation's residential therapeutic communities. In 1975, Illinois state officials removed 11 children from the Elon program, alleging mistreatment. In the late 1970s, Anderson County Sheriff's Office Lt. Max Ashburn visited the school after repeatedly hearing rumors of abuse, but the staff did not allow him entry into the school past the lobby. Following this, he began keeping a file in which he documented names and phone numbers related to Elon, as well as reported abuses. New York State Education Department, which had paid tuition for special education students to attend the lawn school, gave the school a favorable review in 2005. In 2007, however, New York education officials raised questions about the school's practices, alleging in a letter to the school and main education officials that lawn students were physically restraining their peers and being deprived of sleep. The allegations prompted the state of New York to threaten to withdraw tuition money for taxpayer-funded students. The school's lawyers contested the allegations. Of course they did. So a couple of the other controversies. um, On the evening of October thirtieth, 1975, in Greenwich, Connecticut, Martha Moxley, 15, left with friends to participate in Mischief Night. In which neighborhood youths would ring bells and pull pranks, such as toilet papering houses. According to friends, Moxley began flirting with and eventually kissed Thomas Skakel, the older brother of fifteen-year-old Michael Skakel. Moxley was last seen falling falling together behind the fence with Thomas and near the pool in the Skakel backyard at around nine thirty p.m. The next day, Moxley's body was found beneath a tree in her family's backyard. Her pants and underwear were pulled down, but she had not been sexually assaulted. Pieces of a broken six-iron golf club were found near the body. An autopsy indicated that she had been both bludgeoned and stabbed with the club, which was traced back to the Skakel residence. Michael Skakel's trial began on May 7, 2002, in Norwalk, Connecticut. Two former students from Milan, where Skakel received treatment for alcoholism, testified they heard Skakel confess to killing Moxley with a golf club. One of the former students, Gregory Coleman, testified that Skakel was given special privileges and had bragged, I'm going to get away with murder, I'm a Kennedy. Furthermore, witnesses testified that beatings and public humiliation were part of life at Elan during the late 70s. In trial testimony, former students also described the practice of placing a student in a boxing ring surrounded by classmates who confronted the student. The New York Times reported that at the school, smiling without permission can lead to a session of cleaning un- urinals with a toothbrush. On June 7, 2002, Skekel was found guilty of murdering Moxley. Some other deaths related to Elon. In July 1990, 15 year old runaway Brad Glickman of Bedford, New York, visited the home of Todd and Audrey Blaylock in Norway, Maine. After meeting one of Audrey Blaylock's daughters, Glickman told those he met his name was David Smith. Roy O'Hara, a resident at the house, was handling a revolver when it discharged, fatally shooting Gleckman in the heart. He was found guilty of manslaughter. Um, March 21, 1993, 17-year-old student Don Mary Burnham ran away from Milan during a school outing. On March twenty fourth, she was found dead in a snowbank near Interstate 80, 80, having been raped and murdered by a trucker while hitchhiking back home. 36-year-old James Robert Cruz, Jr. was charged with the first-degree murder of Bimbaum burn bomb and sentenced to life in prison so she escaped only to be killed by a serial killer Um, after decades of struggling with mental illness 49 year old tiffany joyce sedaris died by suicide on march 24, 2013 sedaris was the sister of amy sedaris and david sedaris tiffany's two years at elan were cited in her siblings writings and interviews as deeply traumatic to her and a direct cause of her inability to form normal relations with her family members and other people March 2016, Maine State Police announced they had opened a cold case investigation to the death of 15-year-old former lawn resident Phil Williams, who died on December 27, 1982, after participating in lawns ring, where students were forced to fight each other as a means of behavior modifications. Williams had been pushed, punished for taking talking back to staff and was beaten so badly that he died of a brain aneurysm. The state police later announced no charge would be filed as a result of their investigation, citing insufficient evidence. And this was one of the big things that you ran into with the, the law school. They had the ring, they had the one where they just yelled at you and told you you're a horrible person. They also had the ring where they would actually put you into the ring, and then you, as your punishment, had to fight off the other students. Not one or two, they would be over for some of them, they said 45 minutes to an hour of just student after student coming at you until you were beaten. And in this case, the person was beaten so badly that they had a brain aneurysm. So, students would occasionally run away. Uh, former Androscoggin County Sheriff's Office Captain Ray LaFrance stated that law lawn would send groups in vans to search for and return runaways and noted that the school only called police to report missing students as a last resort. The front said some runaways would be relieved to be found after spending nights in the woods, though others were scared to death to go back to Elan. If we really felt they were really scared, we'd bring them into the department, call their parents, and at least let them know what's going on. Then we'd call Elan and they'd come pick them up. In 1979, Lieutenant Max Ashburn was called by a local family to pick up a 16-year-old Elan runaway. The boy had been a student at Elan for several months and said his parents lived in another state. Ashburn recalled in 2016 that the boy was crying and he was begging me not to take him back. Rather than return him to the school, Ashburn, a former truck driver, took the boy to a local diner and instructed him to hitch a ride with one of the truck drivers. Wow. On March 23, 2011, launch school announced it would be closing. On April 1, 2011, the school's owner, Sharon Terry, blamed declining enrollment and resulting financial difficulties as well as negative attacks on, the school, attacks on the school via the internet. In a letter to the Lewiston Sun Journal, Terry said, the school has been the target of harsh and false attacks spread over the internet with the avowed purpose of forcing the school to close. Thank God. So so that was kind of one of the just insane things with the, the that happened. And this is one, I'm giving you kind of an overview on a lot of this, because um, there is more. I mean, it's, it's insane if you really go into some of the, 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 insanity and things that they, that they did to these children and it was horrible. And here's some of the other stuff that they would do is, uh, they would send the, they, they had these companies that were called teen escort companies and not that kind of escort. These are companies that would escort teens to these places, um, they were also called youth transport firms or secure transport companies. So, And they specialize in transporting teacher, teenagers from their homes to various facilities. Um, gooning is what some of them called it. Um, it's a form of legal kidnapping occurring predominantly in the United States in which parents hire rehabilitation organizations to seize children they perceived as troubled and transport them to boot camps. Behavior modification facilities, residential treatment centers—pretty much what we talked about. In most cases, the organization sent a group of people to show up but by surprise and force a teenager into a vehicle, often under cover of darkness. Children who resist are frequently threatened, restrained with handcuffs or zip ties, blindfolded, or hooded. Children who are gooned frequently report post-traumatic stress disorder, problems sleeping at night, and recurring nightmares into adulthood. Paris Hilton details her experience at age 17 with Gooning, culminating in her transport to Provo Canyon School, where she was abused. I had a friend when I was a teenager that was Gooned. Um, his parents thought that he was having mental illnesses, blah, 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 thought they he had problems, mainly because he just didn't want to listen to them, because, well, his parents sucked. And so they, yeah, had him picked up and sent to a mental institution. So, um, yeah, made him really trust his parents after that one. Um, Yeah, just insanity that people would do this. Uh, in 2014, it was estimated there were more than 20 teen escort companies operating in the United States. Parents may use this type of service when they believe their child needs treatment outside the home, but the parent or child is not willing to travel there. The service can cost five to eight thousand U.S. dollars. Often, teens to be transported or picked up during the middle of the night to take advantage of their initial disorientation and to minimize confrontation and flight risk. Aggressive tasks, tactics, such as being punched, restrained with con- handcuffs, or hogtied tied with cable wires, are common. The use of such services is controversial because the services are subject to little or no government regulation and because they are associated with treatment services, which are themselves controversial. For teenagers, seized in the middle of the night by strangers being abducted by a teen escort company may result in permanent trauma. Attempts to establish similar service in other countries have been quickly closed down by authorities under the laws against child abuse, assault, and torture. Insanity. Insanity. And I'm going to leave you guys with that. Think about this. Look into this teen, you know, teen, troubled teen industry, the wilderness therapy, all that stuff. I mean, how many children have been affected by this? I mean, and if any of you, you know, listening have ever had to go through this and you know want to want to talk about it let me know i would i would love to let you vent and hear you know just the horrors i mean i'm not not that i want to hear the horrors but i'd love to hear you vent i mean this is just something that i find atrocious that parents would actually do this to their children and like i said in a lot of cases the kids did nothing they just were they didn't listen to their parents and oh no So they sent them off to these places, which is insane, insane to me. So, all right. Well, thank you all for listening and have a good evening.